Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. One of the healthiest things you can do, of course, is get, well, adequate sleep. And for most people, that's at least seven hours of quality sleep. Hard to get that much sleep. Your mind keeps you awake. You're stressed. Your schedule won't allow you. Wake up early. Can't fall asleep again. 100 reasons out there why you can't get seven hours of good sleep. But listen, it's important because your body heals when you sleep, right? You clear all those uh, amyloid uh, sort of precursors out of your brain. And if you're not getting enough sleep, you're increasing your risk of various illnesses. And you're making it even harder to lose weight for sure. Well, an easy way to get some quality sleep, make sure you're getting enough magnesium. Believe it or not, around 75% of people do not have enough, which may help explain why so many people have sleep problems. Don't run to the store to buy the first magnesium supplement you find. Most supplements with magnesium use only the two cheapest synthetic forms. And since they are not the full spectrum, they may not fix your magnesium deficiency or help you sleep better. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you need to get all of them if you want to have the calming, sleep-enhancing, optimizing effects. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthroughs by Bioptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed. You may be amazed at how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For our exclusive offer for our listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash Drew and use promo code DrDrew10 during checkout to save 10%. Again, that is magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. Use code DrDrew10 at checkout. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everyone, welcome to Doctor Podcast. We appreciate you all being here. Uh, don't forget to check out Doctor.tv for those streaming shows, and uh, Corolla Faithful might like After Dark as well because uh, it's sort of where we started. Everybody, it's like a new incarnation of Loveline. So do check that out at Doctor.com for the pods, and then Doctor.tv for the streaming shows. Today, it is my privilege to bring back Doctor Ginger Campbell. She she hosts my very favorite podcast, Brain Science with Ginger Campbell, MD. And she interviews really the the the, the I, I don't have a strong enough word the the uh, the prophets you know the, all the greats in neuroscience she gets them on there and uh, she knows what she's talking about so she gets good information out of them. Her book is "Are You Sure: The Unconscious Origin of Certainty." Uh, also, we have Virginia Campbell C A M P B E L L. MD.com. Uh, the podcast website is Brain Science Podcast. And her Twitter, you have to tell me, Ginger, what this means, is Doc Artemis. But before you do, I want to remind everyone that she and I met in person at the 2022 Podcast Hall of Fame, where she was inducted uh, as and included with, with others such as Mark Marin and Emily Morse. And I was there uh, sort of. Uh, speaking on behalf of Emily, and lo and behold, I saw Ginger get inducted. I'm like, oh, my God, this is my favorite podcast. i got to go meet Ginger. goes, I had a Ginger. <laughs> and now here we are again, now by Zoom again. So, Ginger, welcome. Thanks, Drew. Great. And it was such a, a pleasure to meet you and your wife in person. Uh, at the whole highlight for me of the event, besides meeting you, um, was meeting Molly Wood's young teenage son and having him tell me he listened to my show because I don't have quite so many listeners that young. So you that should. was really special. That's, it is special. I hope he brings <laughs> others in because God knows uh, people need to get exposed to this, uh, the functioning of this instrument we have in our cranium. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you cover it all at one point or another. I know you're, it seems like you're like me, you're, you're interested in, well, you're interested in uh, helping other people get into these fields, but you're interested in consciousness. That seems to be one of the areas you kind of, a direction you go. Is that, yeah, that's accurate, right? Yeah. Do you want me to tell you what Doc Artemis is? I do. That was going to be my next question. That was going to be my next question. Okay. So that's been my internet handle since 2007 when Twitter started. Um, it goes with Artemis, the Greek goddess, and then, of course, Doc on the front of it. Artemis was 
for those of you who don't know, she was the one it usually see with the bow and arrow. One of the two got, uh, goddesses who was not married. Uh, she was the athletic one and Athena was the smart one. Oh, interesting. And, and so that's that's why I use Doc Artemis. It's also my handle on Xbox Live, although you won't see me there because I'm no good at multiplayer. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> you're, not, you're not hanging out on Twitch all the time? I mean, because I just get killed immediately. I have to play the games on easy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you have to kind of but, be. Um, yeah. you, something about the development of the central nervous system requires that it's like language. You have to sort of be raised with it to really have a skill with it, or or, or those sorts of or swimming or or skiing things. Better better learn young. Well, I also think that there is some truth to the fact that you know reflexes um, do go down as we age, and and I even had a young person tell me this was a resident I was working with who, you know, had gotten to that point where he didn't have time to play video games. And he said that he wasn't even as good at it now that he wasn't doing it three or four hours a day. So yeah. We'll we'll (laughs) see what the full full long-term consequences of young people doing so much of that stuff yet is. So, but I I don't think it may, may not be bad. I mean, it may be good. And, And you're right that one of the key skill sets in doing well with this stuff is speed of processing, which is uh, something woefully uh, apparent to me as I've aged that the, the processing speed is it may, it may go down 10 or 20 percent, but you notice it when it when it happens. Yeah, but you do have gains. You know, it's not all doom and gloom. I think it's important to emphasize that, you know, we get better at our global reasoning um, our ability to continue to learn new things actually does not go down. Uh, and I'm wor- I'm reading a book right now, and I can't remember the name of it, about how important attitude is to how we do as we age, that those with a positive attitude will do much better, even in terms of whether or not we get dementia or how we do if we get dementia. So it's really important to have a positive attitude toward aging. You know, I just had personally a very interesting experience on this. And Gary, I want you to listen to this, something I'm experiencing, which is I've been frustrated with some of the limitations of aging. I've got shoulder things and my exercise tolerance is down (laughs) and my feet of processing is down. My new learning, you're right. I'm learning language. I'm learning new things. I'm always – that is – thank God I had this great liberal arts education. And so learning has been a part of my life forever and that has not slowed down. Um, Maybe I have to go over things a few more times to really lay it down. uh, But no problem. I I don't mind that. That, But – but I have a – I got cast on a reality program that required me to really get in shape. I can't talk about it yet, but to really <laughs> seriously get in shape. And I'm the kind of person that I work out every day. I do 45 minutes of this. I run. But I adjusted my attitude completely and just said, okay, you're going to be running wind sprints on hills. You're going to do four miles and you're going to run wind sprints every quarter mile. And I was like, how am I going to – I'm 63. How is that going to happen? I'll be goddamned if not only did it happen, I, I haven't felt this good since I was like about 35. I was shocked at how well I responded just by this attitudinal change where I kind of had to do it. And, and it was mm-hmm. in my – I think my cognition even sort of cleared a little bit ter- in terms of, uh, I don't know, recall, speed of processing, all that kind of stuff we're talking about. Isn't that interesting? I, I was shocked. I was really surprised. Because why wasn't yeah. I already and there doing is evidence. that? Why wasn't I already doing that? Yeah. If I can do it, why wasn't I already doing it? You know, it's like it it requires some sort of more more than it. There's something more um, automatic about it when you're young, and when you're old, you're and you're forced. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's like you're, you're, there's a motivational. You're looking at me with a little incredulity. What do you think? I, I, no, not incredulity at all. I, that's fascinating, but I'm sick in the head that I'm just focusing on the schedule around here. Now that that is solidified, <laughs> it's going to blow up. Well, well <laughs> I, okay. I, actually, I have a test. I have a VO2 test this afternoon, uh, which is my final threshold I have to pass to go forward with this whole thing. And I'm in awfully good shape. I don't be shocked if I don't do really well at it. So, uh, yes, after I'm today, for, I'm after today the, the shit going down. Cool. So, uh, good luck. I've talked to everyone about it already, so people are prepared. Uh, uh, okay, well, I might have to lift my ban on reality tv i have literally never watched it because i think it's a way to avoid paying writers 
Uh, this is strictly the way it's been described to me. I would not describe this as reality. <laughs> yeah, this TV. isn't really. It's more of a competition thing and a charity thing and that kind of stuff. I think it, you'll it, like it, Ginger. Yeah, it's, it's not. not it's not, not reality. It's not people yelling at each other. No. Although I thought to myself, mm, I bet they're gonna have a Real Housewife in there. You know what I mean? Probably. Somebody, there be mean, somebody like that in look, the, we in need the, the ratings. What do you yeah, want? Somebody like that in the mix, but not. That's not the purpose. You have it. to worry about being voted off the island. I I, I don't. They it's there. It's highly all highly embargoed. And so, okay. I, 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 you know, and so, and so I don't I even know. Wait. No, no, Ginger, I don't know that I, I'm sort of, I, I've seen kind of what they're doing. And I think you're, I think you're really competing against yourself ultimately in this. And it is who can last the longest. There's that. But, but I think it's, it's a, a thing which I is back to what I was talking about. Uh, I've responded so far. So I'm really really digging to see how this goes you know i'm maybe i won't respond maybe it'll be a problem i there is parts of aging but as long as we're talking about aging we'll get back to neuro, neuroscience in a second you're a palliative physician right people maybe i didn't know that about you it wasn't until i met you we started talking that that we we shared our um you know love for palliation is perhaps not the greatest way to frame that but our 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 commitment to the fact that palliation needs much more emphasis and participation in the general care of the patient. And let me frame whatever you're wanting to say by saying this. I was hoping that COVID would produce some sort of conversation about end-of-life desires. Uh, we, we got very focused on nursing homes and, and fatality rates in nursing homes. And I kept saying, you know, guys, uh, on average, a male admitted to a nursing home's life expectancy is about six months on average. Now, people go a lot longer and stuff, but we should be talking to our family members. Do we ever want to be in a nursing home if we only have six months to go in that environment? Do you ever want to go into that environment when you're so far gone that you can't turn on your own, you can't feed on your own, you can't do anything on your own, you can't wipe your own butt? Uh, that's when you go in a nursing home, and do you really want to do that, or might something like palliation be much more in line with our values, our intentions, our utilization of medical resources, our desire to die with dignity, and and no such conversation happened. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. So, oh, have it was at even worse, Drew. It was even worse than that. I mean, the. People that were coming in with COVID were not getting the conversation. I mean, there we were at the beginning where we knew, you know, it's the the time course of the of the disease has changed with the variants. But at the beginning, you know, we knew that we would have almost a two week window before people really crashed, yep. right? Yep. But did we start out by having a conversation at the beginning yep. while they were able? Yep. And sh we should have been asking every single person who had COVID. Do you want to be on a ventilator? Yep. I mean, I, from the very beginning, said, if I get COVID, don't put me on a ventilator. Yep. Yep. And right? by, by the way, if you haven't changed, and I by, haven't changed my position about that. And let me, let me, <laughs> but, let me tell you my position. If I'm 85 and I don't care what the hell condition I have that requires a ventilator, do not do it. 85 year olds on ventilators sometimes survive to, to live a year in misery. That's all. If you're so bad, far gone, you got to go on a vent. It's and you're 85. Don't do it. Don't do it. And and here's the interesting thing for me. When I worked a lot in ICUs early in my career, and the nurses and I used to sit there and just share our dread of the doctors who would go in there and go to the ends of the earth with interventions mm -hmm. on 90 year olds, and that was the most significant source of stress for the ICU nurses. I'm shocked when people go, oh, ICU nurses were so overcome by all the death. No, 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 no. They know when people come into an ICU, they're they. They want to make their death dignified and, and okay. Why did they get so stressed out? Well, turned out they get I, – I looked into this very carefully. They got stressed out because a lot of them were not ICU nurses. They were brought into the ICU from other floors. They were traveling nurses who were stressing themselves out by excessive hours and being away from home and stuff. And, and by the way, probably not ICU nurses to begin with. And and to be fair, there were a lot of young people with COVID. And it was a little bit trying to, to see that. But back to your comment about not wanting to go on a ventilator. Finish that out. Yeah. And so we didn't ever have those conversations. And so people would end up a making the decision under duress. I mean, you really need to make these decisions when you're not 
feeling like you're about to smother, right? Mm -hmm. And we we didn't, and then we ended up in situations where families had to make decisions mm -hmm. because they had never talked to the person about what their wishes were like. Ugh. And then even worse, we we knew that if you know, maybe you choose to be on a ventilator if you're not 85, but let's say you survive the ventilator and you have a relapse, your chances of go of surviving going back on the ventilator, Ugh. really, really bad. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. should have at the very least been asking the people who survived the ventilator, do you ever want to do that again? But did we? By no? the way, by the way, I mean, for any cause. For any cause back on the ventilator. It doesn't have to be COVID. Pretty good, 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 good point. Yeah. I mean, and you know, it was very, it was very frustrating to me to see uh, how little palliative care was involved in in the care of of the COVID patients. And I mean, I, even aside from the isolation issues, which made it challenging, but you know, we just didn't have the opportunities that you would have thought the natural thing to do would be say, "Hey, this is," but we didn't. And so, to me, that was stressful. And then, of course, we did have the period when we were just losing people. I mean, for, for where I am, the peak really of deaths was, was in the um, post Christmas period of 2021, mm -hmm. right. In mm -hmm. January and February um, because people, you know, went and did stuff at Thanksgiving and Christmas. They hadn't been vaccinated yet because vaccine wasn't really ready. And, um, but they went and did everything without their masks anyway, and they all got sick. And then January and February, they're dying. So that was the worst, worst time um, it, for, for us. But um, and now, of course, it's so frustrating because the low vaccine vaccination rates are really bad for the vulnerable. I mean, mm. they're really bad for the people who got vaccinated but aren't going to get a full response. Traditionally, what predict what protects those people is high vaccination rates mm -hmm. because it's high vaccination rates that help stop spread in the community. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about, you know, getting vaccinated. It's not just about protecting yourself. It's about protecting others. And that that's the, you know, the thing that I have found very frustrating about the, the lack of, you know, people wanting to not be vaccinated because they say it's a matter of their personal freedom. Yeah. I, I, I was engaged in that, point of view very aggressively during Alpha and Delta, I'm not sure it applies so much to the Omicron and its variants because it's just breaking through all over the place. And you're maybe you're but less likely to transmit, is, maybe it, less likely. It, it's still it's still keeping you from dying. Oh no, don't it's get me wrong. Keeping... Don't get me wrong. Get vaccinated. <laughs> don't get me get all my all my I mean the problem is that Right. It's out of, you know, the horse is out of the barn. I mean, yeah, maybe yeah. if people had gotten vaccinated back at the beginning, we would have never got to Omicron, but we will never know because yeah. that's not what happened. Yeah. Um, and then with Omicron, there was the whole myth that Omicron was less virulent. Just tell that to the kids. Over a thousand kids have died from the Omicron variant because very few of them are vaccinated yet. So the I, Omicron is only less virulent if you're vaccinated. Yeah, I've seen a lot. That's an of, example of a confounding variable. Yeah, right, yeah, Dr. Drew. <laughs> yeah, Omicron has been protean in how what I've seen it do to people. Mm -hmm. I, I've seen it destroy unvaccinated young people, and I've seen it hurt uh, unboosted people, uh, and I've seen it be very mild, typically for boosted up or or hybrid immunity. Hybrid immunity, in my experience, was very good for Omicron, which means you had it and you had the vaccine. And uh, that that's me. Uh, and Omicron, you know, and I get destroyed by viruses. So it caught my attention when I had a very mild go of Omicron. It's unusual for me. I had H1N1. I, I've had, I get everything. I get everything viral. And H1N1, mm -hmm. I, I assure you, was from from my perspective, I was much more. I, I was sick with COVID. Don't get me wrong. It was a very weird illness. But I was sicker with H1N1. It was toxicity, really awful. And uh, so that was our last pandemic that no one even knows about. That's what I kept saying. You don't know we had one in 2008 or whatever that was. I remember it because I was an ER doctor back then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Therapy. And I've been using BetterHelp for patients and family for quite some time and have generally been very happy with the services they provide. And these days, we all know life can be overwhelming. People are burned out without even realizing it. Symptoms can be lack of motivation, irritability, fatigue, physical symptoms. We associate burnout with work, but uh, boy... (laughs) Burnout, just being alive today burns you out. And BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can really help figure out where the stress is coming from and how to prioritize what you need to do to to manage it, to regulate it. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And certainly there's no waiting room and no stigma associated with going in. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can match with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash drew. That is better, H-E-L-P, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash drew. Testosterone is an important part of a man's physical health and well-being. It starts to deplete with age, and Roman T support is meant to help maintain and support the body's natural testosterone production. Roman T support is a proprietary supplement formulated by Roman's in-house doctors. You can't find this blend anywhere else. It includes ashwagandha, magnesium, vitamin D3, zinc. Roman T sport is not testosterone replacement therapy, TRT, and it is not meant to treat people with testosterone deficiency. Roman offers flexible monthly plans with free two-day shipping. Go to GetRoman.com slash Drew today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of Roman tea support. That is GetRoman.com slash Drew. One more time, GetRoman.com slash Drew. You know, here, let me tell you a funny story. So I was in the Caribbean islands when I got sick with it. And I was in an island, I think it was Dominica, that was having a um, leptospirosis outbreak. I saw it, and I saw it in the front page of the newspaper. And I was, and when I saw the front page, I had been walking around with bare feet out in the water and stuff like that. And, and, I, and I thought, oh, oh, I'm going to get this. I knew it. Then I got sick, so I marched into the ER and I said, "Look, I've got leptospirosis. Give me the tetracycline. I'm going to have a Herxheimer reaction. Get ready." And I was like, I was like and they go, and they go, and Dr. Minsky, settle down. Let us do an evaluation on you. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's right." And lo and behold, H1N1. That was the first time I had one of those uh, way up the nose viral swabs. Uh, that was sort of the first time you have that; it gets your attention. But let, let's let's talk about paleation again. People really, I suspect, don't even know what we're talking about. So, talk about what palliative care is, sort of what what it is you do as a palliative care physician, and where you'd like it to be, which are two very different things. So, um, I guess I'm using my southern pronunciation of palliative care but at any rate it's all um, good i think both both of them are probably valid pronunciations but anyway um the word palliative it comes from a latin word that means to shield so the whole idea of palliative care is to shield patients and their families from suffering that is the world health organization official definition um And that contains two important elements. One is focus on symptom control. You know, if you're going to be alive, you want it to be bearable. You don't want it to be horrible. And two, um, considering the impact of a serious life-threatening illness or injury on the family, Hopefully, you're not going to die alone. You're going to be dying with with your family, which means it's going to impact them. So one of the important, you might say, multidisciplinary team aspects of palliative care is taking into account the impacts that this is going to have on the family. But for physicians, our focus is mostly on symptom, symptom management and, secondly, helping people make decisions that fit their values. Hmm. Um, you've read Atul Gawande's wonderful book on being mortal. I have not. Who is it from? You have to. Okay, tell me, I will. Atul Gawande, the, the surgeon at Harvard, he wrote the checklist manifesto. I'm, I'm literally going to order it right now. Being mortal? Yeah. See, this is... I think, it's, I think it's on being mortal, but if you just Google, I mean, look under Atul Gawande. 
I can spell being mortal better. Let me see how that goes. There it is. Okay. Being yeah, mortal. I think it'll find it either way. Yep, got yeah. it. Yeah. Um, the first half of the book is really it's a, I think they're actually getting ready to make this book into a movie, believe mm. it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because it's he tells it through storytelling, his first half of the book is about his grandmother, and it's really about geriatrics. Mm-hmm. The second half of the book is about him dealing with his father dying. And as he is helping his father to cope with um, dying, he learns about palliative care and he goes and talks to some of the pioneers. And one of the great things he has in there is something called the four questions to ask people. And I am trying to teach residents to put this really into what they ask people up front um, as in what we call our H and P one is um, what are you hoping for? Hmm. Okay, because if you ask a patient, what are you hoping for? You find out a lot of important information. You find out what's important to them. You find out if they are hoping for a miracle or hoping for no pain, just a great hoping for no pain, hoping Hoping for for a gentle passing. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So that's number one. Number two is what are you worried about? And this is one I really think you should ask every patient because mm-hmm. you know how sometimes a guy comes into you and they think like you thought you had leptospirosis. They, a, a patient can be convinced that they got something. It might be totally off the wall that yeah. you would never even think yeah. of. But if you say, what are you worried about? Hopefully that will come out. But, right. And Ginger, and, I want to, I want to drill in on that a bit. You have to pay attention to the patient's language, uh, affect, and uh, sort of, I guess it's anxiety levels. Because as many times I find myself asking that when I have made my assessment, tried to reassure the patient, and then they come back around with some whatabouts and that kind of thing, that's the time to say, are, are you worried about something? Is there something on your mind that I can mm-hmm. address? But, but you have to be listening to your patients to, for that even to occur to you. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of a corollary here is pay attention. Listen. Listen with your whole body. Right. And, and uh, I'll share just sort of a funny, sort of funny story in terms of these questions. Uh, I take care of veterans. And one time I asked these two questions to a veteran and he's for – uh, what are you hoping for? He said, I, I hope that my family will be okay. And this is very common for veterans to be very concerned about their families. And it, actually, it's very common for people who are dying. Their family becomes their number one priority. I mean, nothing. I mean, you know, your job, how much money you have, all that doesn't make any difference anymore when you're dying. But your family, yes. Yeah. So he said, I, I'm hoping my family will what are you worried about? I'm worried that my wife is not going to be okay. Right. So from those two questions, I learned that, you know, he was just totally focused on what was going to happen to his wife, not himself. And that's you know, common. That makes that's, a, common. Uh, that's common. And I, that I, makes a big difference and, and, on, and, right, on what I'm Yeah. And there, there is many versions of that, right? If I'm not productive, if I'm a burden, I don't want to be a burden it, it, to any, you know, all my family members could be. So yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. The 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 last two questions are a little bit more complicated, and I'm not sure I can remember the fourth one well enough to share it. But one of them is, um, how much are you willing to suffer for the possibility that you will live longer? Oh boy, Th- that that right. one. That's a tough one. That was not going to be one you're going to ask every patient yeah because most of them most of them are answering that question from a real unrealistic understanding of their illness you know you and i have Mm -hmm. seen all these things a thousand times so somebody could ask us that and we'll be like "Eh, no Mm -hmm. (laughs) like that i know what that looks like they have no idea what it looks like the suffering and the probabilities are so low and we just saw that with covid with me with the strangest thing that I was asked with COVID is when I had alpha and it was bad, people went, were you scared? I went, no, I was sick, but I had a 1% fatality rate or maybe two in my age group. I was, that, that mean, that's zero. <laughs> that's not to worry about. If I started mm-hmm. going that direction and ended up in the hospital and now I'm at 12%, eh, I'd think about it. But these are still remote probabilities. 
people can't they can't do that kind of probability mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah, so go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the fourth question, I remembered it. It's really important because this is the one that also has a funny story with it in the book, uh, Atul Gawande's book. What do you need to be able to do for living to be worthwhile? Mm. And this is a big one because it changes, you know, mm-hmm. through your lifespan. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if I asked you when you were 30, you would tell me something really different than what you're going to tell me now, I suspect. Mm. And so the the doctor who was talking to Atul Gawande about this said that she asked the question to her father, and he said he wanted to be able to eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on TV. And the reason this was so surprised to her, he had, she had never even seen him do either one of these things. <laughs> That's really funny. It's interesting. So how the we do point that. is, don't assume you know what the person's answer is. Yeah. Ask them and let them decide. And um, even if they don't answer the the point is getting back to what is palliative care about. It's about helping people, you know, to not suffer, but also to make decisions that fit um, what's important to them. Like for a person who doesn't want to be a burden, you know, that's a good example of a value that might lead a person to make certain decisions. Another person's value might be, uh, to live as long as possible, no matter what, yeah, right? Yeah. Now, that's not my value, but it is some people's value. Yeah. Like if I have a person who says, well, you know, I want you to do everything. I want you to do CPR, you know, no matter what. Yeah. Then what I yeah. will say is, okay, that means you're okay with spending the last days of your life in the ICU on a machine. Mm-hmm. Suffering. If they say, If they say yes, that's okay, then I know that. They really mean it when they say that their value is live as long as possible, no matter what. You know, there's no point in ever bringing that subject up to them again, because yeah. that's that's a very clear, yeah. you know, that's kind of an extreme, but it's very clear. You know, most of us are more kind of in these gray areas where, you know, it depends, which is why trying to do things through a living will is so hard, because you can't really anticipate every possible scenario. Right. That's right. Well, it's also why you must keep talking to your patients so you can represent what your understanding of their point of view is when that stuff starts happening. Uh, because right. that that and doctors are afraid to do that, and that's that's I think they have an absolute categorical ethical responsibility to do that as opposed and the nursing too nursing is often like in nursing homes and things they're very scared of end of life stuff that is part of living and by the way, I'm so glad to see a surgeon having created this book because I'm so used to surgeons putting me in the worst possible situation, particularly with cancer diagnoses, when they you know have a debulking procedure and they come out and they go, we got it all, got it all, Good, sh- joy, we did it, we got it all. And they tell that to the yeah, family. Suddenly you've got ma- microscopic vision. and you Oh, God, <laughs> I've been in that situation so many times. It's like, no. And then, of course, they punt all the patient care to the, to the internist and the palliative care people. Who are now trying to piece the family back together? Was I, I thought they got it all. They they told I was in, I, I thought we had this. They they got it all. No, they got it all. Doesn't mean shit when you have cancer. Maybe prostate cancer. Maybe <laughs> maybe skin cancer. Maybe melanoma. That's about it. Everything else got it all doesn't really mean anything. Um, so so um, it, it's uh, it's interesting to me. You know, I. In my across my lifespan, the culture has been done a lot of in this country. Live like live in the now. Live like it's your last day. You've heard those sorts of messages probably our, many of us our whole life, and yet none of us ever asked these four questions that people who really are on their last days need to answer. And we probably should ask ourselves on a regular basis. Well, you hear me talk about the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's right, because we love Jordan. We love his show, and we think you will too. You should have a listen. Uh, Everyone tells you that you have to listen to somebody's podcast, but uh, Jordan is a special guy with a very wild background, lots of experience, smart guy. 
Jordan's show was named Apple's one of its best in 2018. Makes you better informed, more critical thinker. Lots of information you can use. Each episode is a conversation with a different, fascinating guest. One episode talks about a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of a century. Another, an FBI negotiator who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you. Jordan Harbinger is always focused on pulling useful, practical insight out of his brilliant guest. We enjoy the Jordan Harbinger Show. We think you will, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That is H-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, you posted your management positions on the typical job websites. You detailed the specs, the experience, education, and you still got a 1,000 resumes from unqualified applicants. Well, step up to the ladders and see how they can deliver superbly qualified candidates. And right now, you can try it for free. In fact, Ladders gets it. You don't have time to deal with the not-so-qualified candidates to fill your management positions. Your task is to quickly screen, connect, and deliver superbly qualified candidates to fill your open positions. Well, the Ladders saves you time with tap-to-call, one-click contact, unlimited resume downloads, and tech that separates active, ready-to-start, now candidates from the shoppers. Let the ladders prove how much faster they can deliver the right candidates to your inbox for free. Bring your open job spec to theladders.com slash podcast to start your free seven-day trial. That is theladders, L-A-D-D-E-R-S dot com slash podcast. You know, these are these are profoundly philosophical and 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 uh, motivational frames because it helps us understand exactly what you're saying what our values are what we want what we should be doing now the, like what was the guy that wanted to eat cookies and watch tv or whatever it is he should be doing that now that, that if that's important <laughs> to him do it let's do it everybody and that, that's really kind of it, i think it goes well beyond palliative care but to to that point did do you have you well i'm going to ask you a giant question you're probably going to have to talk for 30 minutes to answer this have you have you <laughs> have you have you learned any sweeping philosophical uh truths as a result of working in palliative care number 1 and number 2 uh were there any surprising or extraordinary stories at end of life that you find interesting so th- does being there at the end change your philosophical view first because you've been doing it a while, so it's, you probably have to think back to. And by the way, people that choose palliative care already have a certain philosophy, oftentimes. Right. Yeah. So that's that. Um, but the actual doing of it has really um, made me aware of how um, how little our you know our professional achievements um, matter at the end. Mm. You know. I think when we're young, we tend to think, you know, like I'll win a Nobel Prize or I'll, you know, I'll make this thing that will make me, people will remember me forever because I did this thing that was so great, whatever it was. But in the end, none of that, none of that matters. Uh. I mean, most people I see what matters, um, like I said, is the people that are that are close to them. Yep. And unfortunately I also, because I take care of veterans, it's a population that there's a certain percentage of people that are estranged from their families, mm. especially Vietnam veterans who, mm. you know, um, suffered from PTSD when no one realized what it was and got into various, um, you know, alcohol and, and drug um, uses and burned all their bridges and don't have anybody uh and just seeing those people. Um, but I will say this, you know, I used to think that the most important thing was to not be alone at the end. Mm. But what I have learned is it's not the very end. That's when a person needs to not be alone because um, the reality is that most of us sort of, you know, we sleep a lot when we're dying. We're out of it. We're out. And of it. most people kind of really do just kind of withdraw. And at the end, I don't think it, at the very end, it's that's not not the time. It's when you're still a, when you're aware that you're dying and you're in that that before the actual dying part. That's mm-hmm. when you really need your people that you care about to be with you. And the tr- the problem is that you know we live in such a death denying culture. Mm-hmm. 
that people are afraid of dying. I was going to say, yes, yes. Right. When somebody's dying, nobody wants to be around them. And, and, right and, at the yeah, time when yeah. they need you yes. is when everyone is so scared. And and they recoil even when they're around. I, one of the more – I had a recent powerful experience with a friend of mine who was dying of breast cancer. And it was this crazy breast cancer that just spread like a – almost like a erysipelas all over her body. It's just like it was spreading like mm-hmm. you almost could watch it. It was crazy. And she, it was some strange reaction to her CAR-T inhibitors and stuff where the tumor just took off. And and, and everybody, and she was like, look at this. I was like, I want to see, let me, let's look at this together. This is extraordinary. Jesus, look at this, what you're having to deal with. She was like, no. She, and, um, and I was able to, you know, touch her, feel this thing that was taking over with her, share it with her, kiss her on the forehead. Something I've never really had done with her. It was totally different than our usual relationship, which was just sort of very friendly. And I was noticed everybody else wouldn't even get near the bed. And I thought, oh, I've got to really, I have to move in for sure and and touch her because that's what people want when they're like that. Right. The touching is really important. And that's one reason why um, one of the things that I do with my patients uh, when people normally are not eating very much near the end. Uh, one of the things I like to do is give my families these little sort of spongy things, you know, that you get used to moisten the mouth. Mm. I make it a point of telling them to do it mm-hmm. for that person. Mm-hmm. And it's really my stealth way of making sure that they do touch the person. Yes. They're close enough. That they're, to, yes. That they, Yes. They know that it's okay to touch the person yeah, yeah, yeah. and that they do touch the person. Because, yeah, you're right. That whole touching thing, people get um, weird. So, yeah, listen, you have weird. a friend who, you know, if you have the, you know, a, a friend who, who is dying, remember that they need you to just be there. Mm-hmm. They don't need you to fix it. They may or may not want to talk about it. But they need you to not to just disappear from their life before they die. I mean, that's what happens to people, right? The people, except for maybe their closest family, disappear. They haven't died yet, but everybody's like so scared of death that that they're they're gone. And um, I kind of, you know, imagine that could be one of the worst worst parts. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it is. It, it really, really something that we need to be present with. I look, if you don't want to live, if you don't want to die, you don't want to live. That's what I always tell people. It, so now, hopefully, you live as long as possible and as productively as possible. But you know, we're biological agents, and and we should be able to die with comfort and dignity. As as awful as death is, the process can be done, you know, in an okay way. It doesn't have to be. You know, it, it, we know when it's gonna when we can when we can make somebody better when we can't. I mean, we know. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and I mean, several years ago, I did a talk for the American Humanist Association at their big annual meeting. It's on YouTube if anyone wants to watch it. But um, I was in the Q and A. I was asked about you know the right to to die movement mm-hmm. and. I should have anticipated it, but it, I was totally surprised. So I was a little stumbly at the beginning, but basic, you know, it, for, for the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, we basically have a policy against that just because first of all, there's a, there's enough misunderstanding of what we do. Right. But secondly, um, it's just, you know, it's, it's not in harmony with what we're trying to do, which is to help people to have a, um, as much as possible, suffering-free, natural death. And what I say to um, so the people that asked me about this, it was in Colorado, is, you know, we kind of feel like if you want to die, we're not doing a very good job. Mm. I mean, if as a palliative care physician, I should be making you feel well enough that you would like to have those last days of your life. And mm-hmm. I realize there are situations mm-hmm. where that is not achievable. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, if it's about pain, you know, pain is kind of in most cases, sort of the easy one. Yeah. Um, assuming that you don't live someplace without any morphine, but um, um, you know, if we're not doing a good job, at managing your symptoms and you're so miserable that you want to die to because that's what a lot of people, they want the end of their suffering. I think a lot of times it's the fear that 
that they will have unrelieved suffering at the yeah, end that yeah, drives yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And 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 like you said, we need better knowledge of palliative care so that people will a get that. You know, they don't need to be someplace that has a palliative. Uh, physician. I mean, there's what we call palliative care 101, which mm-hmm. I assume you already know how to do. I every think, physician I I <laughs> ought to be able. Every physician ought to be able to care for a patient when they're dying and not be scared of it. And it's de- it's a very powerful it's- experience. I, I have stood outside a patient room and cried at the beauty of giving somebody a digni- who had a dignified life a dignified death. I get emotional just thinking about it right now. A couple couple of cases because it's there's something. <laughs> Important about it. Important. And then if the particular when the family's all on board with and we're all having the same experience, it's like, oh my goodness. It can be beautiful, which is I know people don't understand that in this country. I mean, my most memorable experience actually happened before I was officially a palliative care doctor. I was still in the ER. Um, and I had a very elderly lady, she might have been almost a hundred, uh, come in and it was, and her daughters were with her and it was very, they'd been caring for her at home. Her skin was beautiful. She'd clearly been very well cared for. And, um, but I knew she was about to die because of, you know, her vital signs are just yeah, bouncing all over the you place. Can tell, yeah. yeah, you can tell. And so um, I, I took them aside and I said, you know, her time is short. I think that we don't need to be, you know, putting IVs in her and all. You just need to to, to be with her. And so that's what we did. And they, they were at the bedside with her. She lived about 30 minutes before she, before she passed away. And later on, they, they actually sent me a thank you note, which I was in the ER for over 20 years and I got exactly two thank you notes. <laughs> and um, so they thanked me for allowing them to be with her mm-hmm. when she died. And um you know, that was one of the things I was thinking about when I decided to go back into fellowship training 30 years out of medical school. Mm. I was thinking about that experience wow. and a few others. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an, a privilege, like you said, Dr. Drew, it's a, tr- a privilege to be with somebody near the, near the end of yeah. their life or at the end of their life. Um, and there's so much that we can, it's what, I mean, doctors for most of the history of medicine haven't really been able to do much except be there with people. And that's what this is about. It's about being there with people and doing what you can to make sure that they don't suffer and that they can, they can have that time with their family. For the sake of our audience, people always like the curiosities at the end. Any, any wild stories? Okay. Well, I, Yes, the only one that comes to my mind, it may not be a really good one, is that families do not always deal with, well with the fact that the person is going to die. God, I know that. And I, <laughs> and I had one once where the the veteran had m- married a Russian woman, and she could just like barely speak English. I don't think she knew anybody, mm-hmm. and so she was an. Um, he had pancreatic cancer, which, as you know, bad, is a very bad, bad, rapid, bad, bad kind mm, of cancer. Yeah. And she was just clinging, 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 clinging. And unfortunately, at the very end, when he did die, she just didn't believe he was dead. Yeah. She kept going, no, no, breathe, breathe, yeah, breathe. I mean, yeah. everyone was like, we honestly did not know what to do because, you know, she she was lost. Yeah. It, have anybody to provide support for her, Mm -hmm. which illustrates the importance of the fact that the family is part of who we try to treat when we are doing palliative care. Which is an important sort of conversation. It's getting a little... And let me, let me give a a positive story because that was kind of negative. Yeah. (laughs) I I, I don't want to start, end on such a negative note. Another time I had a patient who um, had a rapidly advancing cancer who really wanted to go home uh, because he knew that um, his mother wasn't going to be able to visit him where where our hospital is in, in Birmingham, which is the largest city in Alabama, but hard for people from rural areas to get into. And he wanted to go back home to North Alabama where so he would be able to see his mother before he died. But the problem was he was you know, pretty unstable. And, and so we had to take the chance that he wasn't going to make it, 
but he did, he got there and he was there for three or four days before he died. So he, he died at home with his family and his mother. And that's my definition of success. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely he, agree. Completely agree. I, I'll give you an extraordinary story that I'm, I, I wonder if my memory of this is somehow distorted. And and what this guy may have said was, I think I, he may have been a, a version of telling us, I think I'm dying. But what happened was, you know, how patients rally sometimes a couple hours before they die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen that. Mm-hmm. This guy rallied. He was clearly dying. Then he rallied and he sat straight up in bed and he said, I've got an appointment with Bill Smith at 115. And then he went back in the bed and went back into sort of a delirium. And um, and I, I said, Who, who's Bill Smith? Well, Bill's been dead for a while. He doesn't. He hasn't seen Bill in years. One o'clock, he died. <laughs> and I was like, oh boy. <laughs> and it may have been just him, you know, it may have been his version of just, I'm dying. You know, it could have been that kind of thing, but it certainly was an extraordinary Well, you experience. know, whenever they start seeing their mama, that it's going to yeah. be soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, pretty, yeah. pretty reliable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so true. Um, let's, okay, let's let's move out a little bit of uh, palliative care. Because I, I, I told you at the... Uh, induction to the Hall of Fame for podcasting that I wanted to have a deep palliative care talk because no one's talking about it. It's important. I hope this doesn't it, – it's hard <laughs> It's hard not to talk about without getting emotional and sort of um, telling stories that sound tragic, but we, 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 we're not – our feeling about it is not tragic. It just isn't. And we'd love to see the country at least, you know, when there are – sure, it's tragic when somebody's – get sick young it's that's that's the tragedy but the de- dying part doesn't have to be tragic that can be better we could do it better so anyway let's just let's just leave it at that neuroscience podcast what have you who have you spoken to lately what have you learned you're always learning i i hear you talking about what you've come to understand on neuroscience and even also how how did neuroscience become the thing for you too you between er and palliative care i don't it's not psychiatry. It's not neurology you were into and all of a sudden <laughs> neuroscience. Okay. Well, I um, I started out in, in engineering and did a master's in biomedical engineering before I went to medical school. So I had some very brief exposure to neuroscience back in the 70s. And, you know, it was just, just getting started back then. And um, so I didn't really get get into it. But what happened was I had been... I'm, you know, I'm an autodidact. That is, I like to constantly teach myself new things. I get that. And I had been reading Eastern philosophy for many years. And finally, around 2001 or two or so, I started to get interested in, in Western philosophy for the first time. And I discovered that there's this branch of Western philosophy called philosophy of mind. Mm -hmm. And this is where they try to figure out consciousness and where the, the theories that it go back to, you know, to um, um, even, I won't, don't want to say Aristotle because he thought that all the brain did was uh, cool the blood. It was a refrigerator. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, all the thoughts about consciousness lived in um, philosophy for many years because science wasn't ready to deal with, um, you know, the early days of science, it was called natural philosophy. There's this trend that things that can't quite be studied by science start out in philosophy. And then we get a point where we can study them. And that's kind of where neuroscience is. I discovered through philosophy of mind that now neuroscience was starting to look at um, big questions like consciousness, which was the thing that really interested me. Mm-hmm. And so as I was reading and, and I, you know, I probably read for a couple years and then in 2005 podcasting appeared in iTunes and I was listening to podcasts and I thought, Hey, I want to do this, but I didn't really have an idea. Of course I did the usual thing. I recorded something. I thought my voice was horrible and <laughs> that was the end for a while. But then in 2006, I was on, um, you remember when discussion forums were real popular. Yes. So I was on the discussion forum for a podcast that was called um, The Sci-Fi Zone, which was, hmm. a, it was a show about the intersection between philosophy and science fiction. And people were saying all this stuff about the brain that was wrong. And hmm. I was like, I kept putting, well, if you would just read X, you would know X. 
he would know why. And so finally the guy got frustrated with me and he said, well, why don't you just record something for my show? Mm-hmm. So I recorded and he only wanted like five or 10 minutes. So I recorded this little review of Jeff Hawkins book on intelligence. And when I did it, I was like revved up. I mean, it was just, I don't, you know how much fun it is to record. So I don't have to explain it to you, but I didn't know that was a, that I would enjoy that. And I recorded it and I was like, that was so much fun. Not the editing it down to the five minutes. And, and, um, and I was like, I could do a podcast about this. I would never run out of material. This was the summer of 2006. So mm. it was before um, neuroscience was as hot as it is. Also now. before but, podcasting really taken off. Yeah. I mean, but it was getting, you know, easier, not yeah. easy, but easier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I spent six months trying to figure out, you know, what kind of, website was i going to use wordpress or not right, right? i right. mean it was just ridiculous how much time it took to get launched it, there was no twitter or anything right um but that's really how i picked it was that that was what i was into and then i actually have two started two shows at the same time because i was copying mer lafferty i don't know if you know mer but she was in the first group of inductees into the hall of fame mm. and um she used to have two shows, Geek Foo Action Grip and I Should Be Writing, which is still an ongoing podcast. She's a wonderful um, um, sci-fi writer. Um, but anyway, um, I was copying her. She had two shows. I thought, well, I'll have two shows. The second show will be where I put everything that doesn't fit on brain science. And I, I did that sh- brain science, I'm sorry, books and ideas for many years, but it never caught on because it didn't have a niche, right? Mm-hmm. Um had some really great guests on there, but I, it never really had much of an audience. And so I finally gave it up a couple of years ago. But um, but that's really the story behind how I got into it. And then I realized that there are um, more people interested in in a way than I imagined. I mean, I thought that I was going to be aiming at the NPR crowd. Mm. And my goal really was to offset the horrible science coverage of neuroscience coverage in mainstream media. Mm-hmm. But then I start getting all these emails from from students, from people with mental health issues that found the show, show helpful. That's one thing I have never really quite got my head around, but apparently understanding more about how your brain works empowers you. No, not only empowers <laughs> you, it's, it's a natural, it's a natural flow from what's wrong with me to understanding, like how, why am I like this? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's how my brain works. It, it's both as a patient and as a clinician, you find yourself going asking the question of the neuroscience to understand the clinical situation, and and it helps for the patients. It absolutely does. So that's why right. we have this we have this whole notion of psychoeducation, right? That's that's part of treatment for people with mental illness, and brain science is part of that. Yeah. So I actually did a grand rounds for the uh, Hawaii Psychological Association Mm -hmm. uh, earlier this month. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, Zoom is wonderful, right? No, not if if they're offering you a trip to Hawaii. (laughs) I didn't get a trip to Hawaii, but I did enjoy talking to the psychologists in Hawaii. So, yeah, so that was that was really fun. And so, yeah, so I've had a lot over the years, a lot of mental health professionals that that have found that the show um helpful and then there's the neuroscientists who write and say well you know you get stuck in a niche if you're a researcher right a mm. very narrow mm-hmm. area and mm-hmm. it's nice to hear about a, the bigger picture and they'll say i this reminds me of why i went into this in the first place because that big picture and that's really my goal is to keep a big picture level i mean i like to get into the details yeah. from time to time but i always want to keep the big picture why why does this matter to me as my overriding question well and you and you but what's extraordinary about it, aside from that is this guiding you you as the guide and and i see that prism through which you you look at this but you get the canon. You get the. You get the. You're 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 so well read. You know who the important figures are. And by the way, I'm, I'm going to recommend a couple of people to you. But but uh, it's 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 listening to the greats. It's like it's like literally like if you were a uh, I don't know a conductor or something, and you can bring Beethoven in. It's, you know what I mean? It's like these are the greats, and uh, and so we get to hear right out of their mouth what, what their thinking is. Yeah, Drew. I have to admit that I don't work so hard on getting 
well-known guests anymore. Um, years and years ago, I tried to get Eric Kendall, and Ooh. he actually agreed to. He great. actually agreed to come on, but he we could just never get our schedules, you know, jived, and so and it took ten years to get Antonio Damasio and. I just figured out that the trick is you've got to get somebody right in that one month window of when their book is being. Yes, released. that's right. He so I interviewed him too. He was so interesting. I I'd met with him once and and his wife I met with back when they were doing all those wiring. They'd figured out how to figure out wiring with the water molecules and stuff. And uh, but when I spoke to him on a podcast, it, it was interesting to me how much he was devoted and perceived himself as a writer. I didn't realize that was a mm-hmm. major piece of who he was. And I have something in my head about how he defined the self, and I repeated it back to him. And the 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 statement is, he said, the self is a repeatedly reconstructed neurobiological process that endows experience with subjectivity. And And I said that to him, and he went, Oh, that's Damasio poetry. <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> he had nothing to say about the content. It was just the poetry is what impressed him about what he had written. And I thought, well, it is. It is poetry. Um, so it was uh, always great to talk to him. I need to email you or send you three other potentials, particularly two of them, uh, I think would be extremely interesting to you, if you don't mind. May I give you a couple of recommendations? No, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll um, send them to you. But just as a teaser for what's coming, um, you know, la- I, my most recent episode is about the neuroscience of emotion. Mm. And this is at the level of, uh, well, first of all, there was an episode about grieving, mm-hmm. which I thought was really important. I didn't even realize that anyone was studying the neuroscience of grief. Um, and I've gotten a lot of feedback that people have found that episode helpful. Um, more, you know, on a different level than average. Um, and then this episode about um, the neuroscience of emotion actually has to do with the level of animals, you know, why we need to study the animal level. Um, and later in the summer, I'm going to have an episode with a woman f- from the Netherlands who's ri- has a book coming out called Between Us, which is about the interpersonal nature of emotion. So that's mm-hmm. a very different level. I'm, I'm going to so give I you, I, yeah, I'm way into the interpersonal stuff, way into right. the interpersonal neurobiology. And so I, I've actually shared the dais with important people. And I've gotten to know them. So I'm going to send you some good ones in that zone. It's, it's okay. quite a field yeah. once you get into it. It's really something. Right. And, and, um, Later this month, I have a consciousness episode coming out um, that is actually very, I would say, a little bit off the wall. I'll just leave it at that. Um, is it down to the monads? Is it a monad kind of? No, 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 no. It's not, not that, that off. Okay. It's not. Okay. It's not that off. Because the <laughs> there are guys no, out there no. that advocate that. No, stuff. no, no. It's yeah. not. It's 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 not panpsychism. It's right, not that kind of right, off the wall. right. In fact, this person is very much against panpsychism. Oh, it's a okay. different, different. Um, but, um, you know, now we're getting drew where we're getting the next generation. We're getting these younger guys yeah. who've come up since it's become an okay thing to study consciousness. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. like Anil Seth, who I interviewed last year. And this is an, this person's another person of that generation. And it's, it's kind of, um, uh, in, interesting where he went. And then this, I'm actually going to play a couple of encore episodes because um, I do have a lot of content behind the paywall and mm. I want to give people a chance to see, to hear some of the, the really good episodes from the past. Well, Ginger, we could talk and talk and talk. And as always, I, I would, you know, welcome the opportunity to talk more, but we have to wrap this thing up. <laughs> uh, it is, uh, again, Are You Sure? The con- Unconscious Origin of Certainty. Uh, Brain Science with Ginger Campbell is where you need to go. The website, uh, brainsciencepodcast.com. Twitter, at Doc Artemis Ginger. It is always a privilege and a, and a pleasure to speak with you. So uh, please do stay in touch. Thanks again, Drew. All right, Ginger. And we'll see you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. 
The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. All this month, stream the funniest films for free on Pluto TV. Watch comedy classics like Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, and Mean Girls. Or drop in for a Tyler Perry marathon with a Medea family funeral and Medea's witness protection. Pluto TV also has hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and TV shows like Get Shorty, Be Cool, Key and Peel, Comedy and Color, and more. And no contracts, no subscriptions, no fees, no joke. So download the Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device and start laughing today. Pluto TV, drop in, watch free. Do you want to thrive outside the nine to five? then Mom's Exit Interview Podcast is for you. In each episode, you'll hear from inspirational everyday moms taking control. Entrepreneurs, stay-at-home moms with side hustles, consultants, and more. Plus, experts with actionable tips like Rebecca Minkoff and Gretchen Rubin. I'm Kim Ritberg, former Us Weekly and Netflix executive and mom of two. I've got the best boss now, me, and I've never been happier. Whether you're in transition or already made a change, let's create a more flexible and fulfilling life together. Listen to and follow Mom's Exit Interview on Apple Podcasts. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.